how many other properties are zoned in this capacity and what's the likelihood that they'll be getting there. So that's one way in which we determine what worst case is. And if that saturation level begins rising, how do we get out of it? And what price point do we do? Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E. You're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Scott Crone. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's my pleasure. A little bit about Scott. He's a founder and director of development for Coda Management Group. They focus on self-storage facilities. And in fact, not only do they focus on it, they develop them. They're in the process of closing on their eighth self-storage facility. They have about 2,000 units right now with about 3,000 that are coming online soon, based in Chicago, Illinois. With that being said, Scott, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I'd love to. My background began in real estate when I began getting my master's of architecture way back in 1991. So I've came online just as we were in the midst of the recession back in 91. And I was involved heavily in multifamily at that point in time. And then in 1998, I started Coda 
and we were a development design build firm. And we've focused on single family, multifamily, mixed use uh, apartments. And now since 13, we've been focusing on self-storage as our investment portfolio. So during that time, I've obviously seen the 91 and the 2001 and 2008 recession. And it certainly looks like we're heading into at this point in time. So development design build originally focused on multifamily and single family home. Did I hear that correct? That is correct. When I got my master's degree, I was working for a developer who owned an architectural design build firm as well. And my master's thesis was a 400 unit development that we worked on for six years. And I did other multifamily for him during that period of time. Okay. What did you learn in that process that focus on multifamily development design build that you're applying now with self-storage? Well, the way I view it is self-storage is just a more simplistic version of multifamily. It's uh, an apartment without toilets and sinks, but we have a greater diversification within the product type. But what I did learn is obviously the importance of understanding the capital stack, how to leverage the capital stack in in a conservative manner, but also to enhance our investors' rate of returns, how to acquire, how to develop efficient designing of the units and the layouts so that we can maximize the rentable square footage of the building. And then obviously, I also learned throughout the construction, the best practices for building and how we can apply that to self-storage. Well, let's talk about a couple of those things that you mentioned, how to leverage the capital stack in a conservative manner, but also helps yield good projected returns to investors. Can you give some specifics on that? Absolutely. A few things that we have done is that we've acquired assets that had cell towers and we've sold off the cell towers, other buildings that we've been able to acquire historic tax credits. So those historic tax credits get funneled back to the investors. We've done PACE financing. We've done opportunity zone funds. We've created two funds for our investors on that so they can shelter their capital gains. We've worked with IRA investors and the other one is obviously cost segregation. So something that we can do with a cost segregation on an apartment or self-storage facility that we couldn't do with condominiums. And for the efficient designing of the layouts to maximize the rent per square foot and just not overbuild unnecessarily, what are some things you learned there? Well, efficiency is the most important thing when we're looking at something. So minimizing length of hallways, how to create variation within the unit product type. So the more regular of the building that we have, the more regular the column spacing, the more efficient that we can get. So we have to balance the building code with the travel distances and egress and all those sorts of things, but how to lay out the units so that we can reduce those hallways and those travel distances so that we can get more square footage, rentable square footage in the building. With what you're doing now, Self-storage, as you said, you look at it as a more simplistic apartment community. It's an apartment without toilets and sinks. Why switch over to self-storage and why switch over at the point in time that you did? Well, we were coming off the crash of 2008, 2009, and everyone was jumping into multifamily. I felt that there was huge cap compression going on and there was a lot of competition within it. And when I began Studying the self-storage, I couldn't find a distressed self-storage facility. I could find plenty of distressed apartment buildings, but I couldn't find a distressed self-storage. So that alerted me to something was different with this asset class. 
once I got more involved with them, then I understood more of the demographics and how we can study the market to determine which areas need self-storage and which ones are oversaturated. And so it was easier to monetize or put a number to the product than it was within multifamily in terms of demand, where the supply is and what those indices were. So what I see is that one, it's a reduced risk because we can analyze it better. Two, my operational costs, my capital expenditure is about 10% of what it would be compared to multifamily to get the same number of units. And then the third one is, it's the simplicity of product. We take the Henry Ford model that used to be famous for saying, you could have any color car you want as long as it's black. <laughs> and, you know, and so with self-storage, I don't have to worry about if the counters are the wrong color or the tiles, the wrong color or the carpeting. It's, you can have a white locker or you can have a white locker. How do you determine the demand for self-storage? You were talking about that earlier. I would love to learn more. The metric is the number of square feet of locker per capita. And there's services out there that can provide that. And it's based upon a one, three and five mile radius. So for the most part across the country, the saturation level of square feet of lockers per capita is seven. In higher density markets like New York or places in Florida, it might be nine or the South. The South is becoming very saturated now. You said most markets, is that based off of a one, three or five mile? Yes. They'll look at each of those. So for instance, you might be high within one mile, but if three miles, then you're good, then they'll broaden it to the three mile because most buyers are within three miles in a heavily urban setting. In a more rural setting, they'll be five to seven and a half miles. Most people won't travel more than seven miles to go to a self-storage facility. All right. So it's number of square feet of locker per capita, and it's based off of a one, three, and five mile measurement. And you said most markets are, what, seven thousand square feet or what you said seven seven square feet of lockers per capita seven square feet of lockers per capita got it okay give us some extremes for what would be above that like a rural area and below it and what those numbers are like what would new york city be versus green river wyoming be Without knowing where Green, Wyoming is, I I I used to, I know the the former mayor of Green River, Wyoming. That's why I brought that up. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll give you an example. We we were at a conference one day, and I was talking with a woman who was a multifamily and single family developer in, in the Austin, Texas market, and she learned what we did. And she goes, "Oh, I have a property that's like five acres. I'm planning on building a hundred thousand square feet of self storage there." And I said, "Have you?" done a saturation study? Have you done a feasibility study? And she goes, no, I, I figured when we do it, they'll just tell us what we have to build. And I said, well, before you start going, venturing down this path too far, you might want to make sure what your saturation level is because if it's too high, then you're, you're going to be wasting your money. In fact, you'll be risking and losing all your money. So I said, where is it? And she gave me the address. So I plugged in the address in Austin, Texas, and immediately 18 facilities came up within three miles. And I sent it off to our people that do our reports for us. And they came back and said it was nine without her facility. So if her facility comes online, it would be like around 10. So what that means is that you're going to have slower absorption rates. You're going to have lower pricing. It's going to put a lot more economic pressure on your feasibility model. 
to put it in perspective, when we went into our market in Chicago, we had a half a million people within three miles and the feasibility report came back at two. So if I'm going into a market at two compared to nine, I'm certainly going to take the market that was two. Now you might say, well, I see plenty of self-storage facilities in Chicago. That's true. But within three miles of this location, there was only two square feet of lockers per capita. You said when you got her address or zip code, you plugged it in and then you got initial information, then you sent it to your feasibility people. What are you plugging it into? What software program? Well, it's very highly complex, you know, detailed. You're setting me up. <laughs> what we got? Google? What are you doing? Google Maps was my first, okay. my, it's my first indicator. And, yep. and I do that always just to get a sense. Because everyone says, oh, there's no self-storage around me. And then I ask for the address and I put it in. And inherently, it's the type of thing that people are not aware of. It's like when you say you're going to buy a blue car, then you notice every blue car around the right. neighborhood. But until that point in time, you're not recognizing how many blue cars are out there. So the first step is just for me to plug it into Google Maps and I'll put in self-storage near that address. I can't do the zip code because that's not even specific enough. I have to put in that specific address. So when I just look at it, if I get a sense of how many are around there, there's like two or three, I'm like, okay, makes sense. If I see it's like 10, 20, and it's not a really urban area, then I'm going to think like, this is way too much. Mm-hmm. And that's just the thumbnail test before we start really digging into the details and the nitty gritty of the due diligence. If it doesn't pass that first litmus test, then I'm not going to do it. The second litmus test is then I'll turn it to satellite and see what the product of housing stock is around that neighborhood. So if I see a lot of empty yards, like farm country and this and that, or not a whole lot of homes or apartment buildings, that's also another indicator. Take your Wyoming city. If I plug that in and I see it's mostly rural and there's five facilities, that's not going to look real good for me. But if I see it's incredibly dense area and there's five facilities, then there could be probability there. It could be possibility there. One, put in the address and then look for self-storage nearby, then do a follow-up and see what type of housing is around it. Do you want more apartments than homes? What we want is density. So it doesn't have to be necessarily apartments per se. So like, for instance, our property in Chicago, when the city of Chicago did away with public housing per se, like Cabrini Greedy, Robert Taylor Homes, et cetera, et cetera, they went from these 60 story, 10,000 people per square mile density, and they put them all in row houses. And in Chicago, it used to be like a three story house, and then they converted them to three apartments per house. Mm-hmm. So our project in Chicago is surrounded by homes like that. So we have 500,000 people in predominantly what we would classify, you look at them as single family homes, but they're really apartment buildings because they have three units. So if we see a lot of tight clustered housing stock in around there, then we'll get a better sense of the fact that it's a dense area. So for our class A facilities, we're looking for anywhere from 100,000 to 500,000 people in the radius is depending on what the saturation level is. If it's only 100,000 people and it's at seven, then it's going to be very hard to fill it up. If we have 500,000 people and it's at two, then it's going to be very easy to fill it up. And then the next level analysis is, as you mentioned, sending it over to the team that does your feasibility study. So what are they looking at that you're not? 
They just pull more resources. They'll pull censuses, tracks. They'll pull what the growth is, what the medium income is, what the segment of the population is. And the reason why we do that is because the medium income and the other demographics, renters versus owners, will give us a sense of what type of walker to put in there. So the more affluent the community is, the larger demand for bigger lockers. The, the less affluent the community is, then there's a greater demand for smaller lockers. And so we'll get a sense of what configuration we need to do to put in that building in order to maximize marketability, the saleability of our product. What's considered a large locker versus a small locker? An average locker is 90 square feet. So if you're medium income, that if 90 square feet is on average. So that would be a 10 by 10 as your basis point for what a, a typical locker is. We go up to 20 by 30 and we go as small as five by five. So let's say it's in a more affluent or we'll talk specifics. Let's talk about the facility that you have that is in the most affluent of your areas based off what you own. What's the configuration there? Well, it's a great question because we specifically went through this. We were having trouble leasing them up and when we were talking with the sales team, they were saying, we're sold out of the 10 by 20s. I mean, we said, we need more larger lockers. And we were looking at the configurations. I said, what happens if we convert the 10 by 10s into 10 by 20s? And they said, we'll have that much more success. Even though the person is renting the same amount of square footage, there was something in their mind that just said, okay, I need a 10 by 20. Mm-hmm. So we took out the middle walls and we leased up all the 10 by 10s. And once we converted them to 10 by 20s. Wow. What does it take to do that conversion? Well, when we're doing with class A, we're taking existing commercial buildings, either office or warehouses or retail, and we're converting them into self-storage, which means that our lockers go up to eight feet. And once you get to eight feet, then there's chicken wire across the top. And the reason why we have chicken wire is we need to be able to get light, heating, and more importantly, fire suppression into each individual unit. Mm. So, all it is is a corrugated metal wall. So it was a sill track that's tapped into the concrete or the flooring. So it was a matter of removing the wall, screwing that wall to the end wall and pulling up the track and keeping the track in the unit as well. So we had the ability of converting it back, but it was just a matter of relocating single corrugated metal wall. What's the largest conversion you've done? Square footage wise? Yeah. Well, to date, the largest one is our one in Milwaukee where we got historic tax credits. And we went through the process of converting that into a national park. So we will charge tickets if you want to, you know, if you're on your national tour of the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, you can stop by our self-storage facility. (laughs) That was 100,000 square feet. Wait, time out. What did you say? (laughs) (laughs) It's a national park. It's going to be registered. When you make a building historic, yet historic tax for it, you go through the Department of natural resources and they make it a national park. Your self-storage facility? Our building that is now self-storage is going to be on the national park register. Yes. Okay. There's the trivia question. What was it prior to you doing this renovation? It was the first fireproof building in Milwaukee and they used it for hard data files. Mm -hmm. So everything from banker boxes to election ballot tickets, all those sorts of things. And obviously when people are going from 
a paper world to a digital world, companies didn't need to run big floor spaces of storage because they had it all on a computer and a gigabyte or a trillion byte or whatever the latest measurement of computer storage is. So by dividing it, then we can rent smaller spaces to the residential community as well as its commercial community. And so we're just finishing up that process right now. We got SBA financing on it, and we're going to be finishing up in the next uh, six weeks to get this thing done. And what's the total square footage for that one? That was 102,000 square feet. And the project that we just went under contract for in Louisville, Kentucky, is actually going to be 140,000 square feet. And we're going to make it a, a combination of mixed flex space as well as self-storage. So we'll have about 80,000 square feet-ish of self-storage and about another 60,000 square feet of flex space. What was that building prior to you plan on doing? Originally, it was a candy factory. Hmm. And right now, people have been using it for storage. They've been using it for making envelopes. They still make envelopes there with these presses from like the 16th century, which is (laughs) crazy. And I don't know who they get to repair those things, but they have Xerox copier there. And we actually also have a church that is inquiring with us to begin planting a satellite campus at that location. Taking a giant step back, what is your best real estate investing advice ever as it relates to your area of expertise? Well, I don't think it's just limited to my real estate expertise, but my mentor always told me to look at best case, worst case, and what most likely will happen. So I think a lot of people look at best case and then maybe what most likely will happen. But with stress tests and looking at the downside, if we can make it work with worst case, then that's what we go forward with. So we always try to be conservative and making sure that our numbers are accurate and as good as we can possibly get them so that we have that worst case in mind. So that might be multiple exit strategies that might be looking at if we lose rent, if we lose market share, each of those things. So to make sure that we're still able to perform. The challenge I have with worst cases, regardless of however you're modeling it in worst case, it's never going to be the actual worst case. Because I guarantee you someone, and I could probably come up with, but what if this happened on top of that? So how do you really identify when you say worst case It's never really the true worst case, but where do you stop? Like, okay, this is like a reasonable worst case, whereas that other worst case, you're tripping on some drug and that's never going to take place. Well, I think that's part of the experience of going through. Now, we're not quite into this fourth recession right now, but it's all indications leading that it's going to be heading that way. So I've been able to see what worst case looks like. The crash of 2008 was really incredibly devastating from a lending perspective. And we had to alter and shift very quickly in order to survive during that period of time. But we also didn't get over leveraged. And that was one of the things that kept us afloat. So with this one, I think, are we at a worst case right now? where there's no definitive time frame of getting back on the highway here. There was a clear exit ramp, but there's not a clear entrance ramp. So if we're going to look at what it takes to cover our debt service. So typically before this new environment, we would say is how much product could come into the marketplace that would drive down our costs. And that's where we go back to our due diligence on the front end. And then in that case, 
what is the likelihood or the probability of a property getting rezoned or the ability for another product to come up and be part of the competition. So we look at what are the barriers to entry in that marketplace and seeing how much resistance there is to that product. For instance, in Milwaukee, we knew that they were not going to allow any new self-storage to be rezoned. So we were fortunate that our property had the zoning when we bought it. We didn't have to go through that rezoning process. So what we do is we look around there and say, okay, so we will then look at raising the cap rate and seeing what the margins would be once we do that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, let's do it. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Best ever way you like to give back to the community. Well, one of the ways in which I do it is I'm part of a nationwide organization of about 35,000 people. We have a private Facebook group community and I do a, a weekly Tuesday tip and I go on there and people post questions, they post victories, they post what we call celebrate wins. So I go and just look for ways in which I can answer questions based upon my experience of now being in the industry for 30 years. I, I bring a little bit more than most people have in that community. So I offer a different perspective. One of the, that's one of the ways I enjoy doing it, is just taking some time and answering people's questions or helping them up or calling them up and just helping them through their challenges. What's a deal you've lost money on? It was a single family house. The market crashed. We paid off the bank in full, but we didn't get all of our equity back. And so that was a tough one. What is the best ever deal you've done? Well, the best ever deal from a percentage point of view and this is going back to before the crash and the crazy economic structure that was there. We bought a house for $600,000. I put $400,000 to build a new house and I sold it for $1.6 million and I only had $60,000 down. So I did the whole thing basically at a $1.6 million house I did with $60,000. So the rate of return on that one was phenomenal. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you and your company are doing? Our webpage is www.codamg.com. So that's codamg as in management group.com. And you can certainly send us an email at info at codamg.com. One quick story about that house. I took my oldest daughter. We went and watched the big short. And she's like, did that stuff really happen? I'm like, yep. And it's paying for your college right now. <laughs> Yeah, your timing was good on that one. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you for being on the show. Enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for talking about your self-storage tips and getting into the specifics of capital stacks and how to leverage capital stack as well as feasibility studies and how to take a look at self-storage and some different considerations as well. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thank you very much.